Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby! Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again <laughs> with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Limitless, infinite, unbounded. These are words that should define our minds, yet this is not so for most of the world. Consciousness has been confined while the brain has been enshrined in the plastic white glow of a science laboratory. A mind devoid of meaning due to the constraints of the upside-down conventions we've been given. Here to reverse this upheaval is Mark Gober. After graduating magna cum laude from Princeton University and working in the worlds of high finance and Silicon Valley, he realized how upside down the world he found himself in truly was, and how very few knew why. Since then, Mr. Gober has written four books and currently serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. He joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks a Crazy podcast to discuss all of this and more. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Mark Gober.
before I even write a word or type the first word, I always set the intention that I'm going to be a vessel for whatever's for the highest good. And if there are benevolent beings that can work through me as a vessel, that like I'm here for that because my intelligence is limited as a human being. So I do think that there like are these positive forces that can help us too. We're left with this paradox that at a time when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. And this is what people report. They say it's realer than real. So it's not like they have some kind of hazy vision. No, it's clearer than what they usually see. Sometimes they talk about omnidirectional 360 degree vision hovering over their bodies. Sometimes they see things in the room or outside their room, which are validated upon being resuscitated. So they tell the doctor what happened. They tell family members and they say, how do you know that that happened? I was very specific and you were dead and you're describing it from above your body. That's, that's crazy. Well, it's not crazy if consciousness isn't tied to the body. And when the brain shuts off, consciousness is actually liberated, which suggests that the brain gets in the way of our experience. In any case, I, I give that preface because what happens in 20 to 30% of the time of near-death experience accounts, depending on which expert you talk to, people report a life review. They relive their whole life in a compressed amount of time. So something like, you know, Einstein's relativity theory where time can be compressed, that something must be happening because people relive their whole lives sometimes. And it's a short, it's not that long period of time. But the key here is that they become the people that they impacted. They literally become that person and they feel the effects of how you treated that person. They get to see it through that person's eyes. And one of the people I interviewed for my podcast is Daniel Brinkley who over the course of decades has had four near-death experiences. And when I interviewed him a few years ago, I was asking him about his three near-death experiences. And he, he's like, Mark, I just had a fourth. So, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I have with me today the author of An End to Upside Down Thinking, An End to Upside Down Living, An End to Upside Down Liberty, and An End to Upside Down Contact. He is Mark Gober. He is the new host of a podcast called Where Is My Mind, and he is joining us here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Mark Gober, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. And thank you for being patient with the little intro switch up there. Where did this journey begin for you? How did this start? Well, it's been an unexpected journey. I grew up outside of Baltimore, Maryland. I was a competitive tennis player. So that was a big part of my life growing up. I traveled to national tournaments and very focused on school as well. Like 
So academics were a big part of my life and I was very social. So growing up, I was just constantly busy, but I was focused on the next thing that I wanted to achieve, whatever that was. So I always had goals in mind. And after high school, I went to Princeton where I was on the tennis team. It's a division one program. So it kept me very busy. I was one of the captains of the team my senior year. And also, again, focused a lot on my academics, which is it's very challenging at Princeton and, and social life on top of that. So much of the same. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do after that. Most of my colleagues or classmates then were going into business. So a lot of them went into investment banking or strategy consulting. So I wasn't Given that I didn't really know what I wanted to do long term, I said, well, why don't I try something like that? So I ended up going into investment banking where I, I started my career in New York in 2008. So summer of 2008 is actually when I started. Great timing. <laughs> it was absolutely brutal. I, I People told me that it was going to be tough, but I, I figured I would be able to handle it. And I guess I did to some degree, but it was way harder than I thought it would be. And part of it was the environment. Like... Being, I was at a bank called UBS, so one of the large investment banks globally that was having trouble, like all the other banks. So there was stress internally. There were layoffs and things like that. I remember my my cl class that was starting up, there were maybe 10% or so that were laid off shortly after our training program. So they were cutting back, and that was a stressor, just entering the job market, not having all that uncertainty. And then I was also in the group that was responsible for advising other companies that are financial institutions. So the clients that I was advising were companies like banks and insurance companies, asset managers. So all the types of companies that you would see in the news that were having big time struggles were the ones we were advising. So you could imagine that was a tough time, both within the, the company, but also dealing with distressed companies adds a lot of stress. And it's an environment that's known to be pretty hardcore where you're expected to work around the clock and not sleep and not and work on the weekends. That's just part of the program. So at that point, like pretty quickly working in investment banking, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do long-term, but it wasn't like I had some big vision for my life. So in 2010, I ended up leaving the firm and joined a company where I spent 10 years, first in the Boston office, and then I moved to Silicon Valley, which is where I spent most of my time. And the job there was to advise companies on their intellectual property and technology. So we worked with companies that had patented technologies, often big companies, but some smaller companies as well. So some of the smaller companies would have just a few key inventions, but some of the big companies would have thousands or tens of thousands, and they wanted help on how to manage all that, that innovation. So for me, that was more interesting in a lot of ways, because I got to work with inventors and learn about technologies and Every Think about every industry has technology and we worked across the board. So that was interesting. But at the same time, I was working really hard and just kind of laser focused on like, what's the next client engagement? It was this cycle, a treadmill of, I've got to achieve this next thing. And let's say I achieve it. And then I end up at this baseline level of happiness. And in the back of my mind through this whole period, I thought life was meaningless. So my worldview, my metaphysics, even though I wouldn't have used that terminology back then was when you die, that's the end. There's no awareness or consciousness. There's no life after death. There's no spirituality or religion. That's superstition from the old times. And our science has progressed us past that. So we should give up those old superstitions and just accept the fact that we live in a, a meaningless and random universe and not cry about it because that's just reality. That's the way I thought and explicitly so. And as I got older, I, more, I was more and more in that mindset. You can only go so long with that mindset, especially when there are ups and downs in life. And that's what started to happen more and more because I was 
even from the beginning, I was sort of lost because I didn't have a, anything in a compass directing my life. But I thought maybe, well, if I keep achieving the things that I want to achieve, there might be some magical, mythical place of happiness that would exist. And I started to realize that wasn't there. And I was looking for the the deeper meaning in life. And then I would think about my metaphysics and wait, there is no meaning in life. And then on top of that, I started to have some, like there were some business deals that I was working on, spent a lot of time on that didn't go the way that I wanted. Some things in my like personal life didn't go the way that I wanted. And I was feeling super lost. This was maybe 2014, 15, 16 era where I wasn't able to handle the ups and downs quite as much. And I didn't have direction. So in 2016, I remember a buddy of mine sent me a podcast. I think it was Tim Ferriss and it was a venture capitalist on a podcast. And what was so interesting about that was podcasts were newer at the time. And I thought this is a really cool thing to do outside of work because I didn't have like all that many hobbies when I wasn't working because I was working so much and just thinking about work. This is a cool thing to educate myself. I can listen to very smart people talk. And then I started listening to more and more shows, started getting into alternative health and learned about things like sensory deprivation flotation tanks, which I heard initially on Tim Ferriss. So I started to do some sensory deprivation stuff. This was 2016. And then I heard an episode on a show called Extreme Health Radio, alternative health show, wasn't looking for anything supernatural, but they interviewed a woman who was a psychic and talked about her supernatural experiences. And she sounded pretty credible. Her name's Laura Powers. And at the end of that episode, she mentioned that she has her own podcast called Healing Powers, where she's interviewed many other people from different backgrounds who have these experiences as well. Like it's not just a an idea to them, it's something they actually like a lived experience. And since I was listening to lots of podcasts anyway, I decided to listen to hers. And I ended up listening to all of her episodes from 2016 back to 2011 when she first started the show. They were pretty short episodes. So I got a lot of different voices in and it wasn't scientific it was just a lot of anecdotes. And I was like, wait a second, how are all these people saying basically the same thing? They don't know each other. <laughs> they come from different backgrounds. And then I started to read scientific papers and started to read books about this stuff. And I was totally hooked. This was like fall of 2016. And it got to the point where I had an, enough of an evidence base where my old worldview of, of a random meaningless universe seemed to be incorrect. And I didn't know exactly what was true, but there was some other dimension of reality that our eyes don't show us. And probably a continuation of consciousness after the body dies, the reality of psychic abilities, reincarnation, all these ideas that would have been crazy to me before. Now I was confronted with a lot of evidence suggesting that those things might be real. And the more I looked, the more I thought, wow, this stuff probably is real. I need to rethink my whole life. And just to fast forward, I, I got so hooked that a year later, I wrote my first book and ended upside down thinking, which aggregates the evidence that consciousness does not come from the brain. So it's all the evidence for things like psychic phenomena, survival of bodily death, things that people would typically call paranormal, but actually they're not paranormal if you change your view of reality. And that book was, it was wrote in 2017, was published in 2018. I became a partner at my firm in 2018 and then did a podcast series called Where Is My Mind, where I interviewed many of the scientists that I wrote about. So professors from the University of Virginia, I interviewed a Nobel Prize winner in physics, Dr. Brian Josephson. So some really credentialed people that were supporting the ideas that I'd written about. So, and I, and I partnered up with Blue Duck Media, which is a, a company that fo usually does sports shows. And they, because one of my buddies from high school worked there, they were willing to take on this kind of different show and try to make it mainstream. 
So again, it's called Where's My Mind? It's eight episodes. We took clips from those interviews and we spliced them into a narrative. So in any given episode, you might hear from like 10 plus experts. And so that took us to the end of 2019. I had written the book, the podcast came out because the podcast was formally came out in August, September of 2019. And I wasn't really sure what I was doing because I, I had these, I still had interests in these other areas. And yet I was working really hard at my company and had like these client engagements require a lot of energy and focus. And I felt myself being really split. Like I wanted to study the supernatural, understand the nature of reality. What are we doing here? Why do we exist? And then I'd have to go into the client work. And this back and forth became more and more difficult. So I made a decision, which probably seemed very crazy to people around me at the end of 2019, before I knew anything about lockdowns. <laughs> I decided to leave my firm and told my business partners that I would transition out of the firm, not knowing what I would do next. I just needed to give myself space, basically a sabbatical. I didn't even know what it was. And then long story short, I've written three more books since then. So I wrote an end to upside down living, which is an approach to living life based on these spiritual ideas. And then with all the craziness with COVID and the manipulation in the media, I started to see that there's a whole other paradigm shift that I need to look at, which is the darkness that exists in the world. And so I wrote a book called an end to upside down Liberty, which challenges the view that government is benevolent and paints a different picture that came out in 2021. And then in 2022, I wrote a book about, and it's called an end to upside down contact, which is the evidence for non-human intelligence. And what I regard to be a, a spiritual battle between good and evil. And that's where we are today. That book just came out a few months ago. Fantastic. Wow. And I really, I'm really interested in sort of parsing through the the course of those four books and how how you came to you know evolve one from the other because as you're telling me the the story of how this came together the course of your life I'm noticing that you know the symptomata that you're facing is what you have gotten to the root of with this consciousness equation, right? You, you ultimately, you know, I hope I'm not speaking for you, but it seems like it all boils down to to consciousness, what you were what you were go going up against with this, you know, work regime that that does not support consciousness. It's not a consciousness first system, right? You had problems with that cuz you're a conscious being, you know, this system's asking you to, you know, extinguish that in order to cohere to the system. Did this dawn on you? Have you felt like, you know, like you're sort of shaking up the system? Obviously your family thought you were crazy for leaving the firm, but you know, like, is it the, the way, you know, that you relate to others that sort of sets you apart? Like, you know, is this, is this something that you, you, you've always had, you know, sort of like, you know, rebellious, attitude about like the world or or did this just dawn on you over the course of of what you told us here well looking back throughout my life i was probably at the same time very mainstream and fitting into the system but i was doing that in a way where i had to fake it so i was good at faking it but i was also probably a different kind of a thinker and thinking back to just comments my friends would have made to me even back in high school is that i was i was always thinking about things a little bit differently I just didn't know maybe the root of that, that there was this deeper existential issue. Mm. And that, that's what's really come to the forefront. And you're, you're totally right, Mark, that the basis of all of these books really is about the nature of reality. And when I talk about the nature of reality based on the research I've done, it comes down to this notion of consciousness, the idea that our identity is actually 
consciousness and not our body. The body's a vehicle for consciousness. Consciousness comes through the body and has a certain type of experience through each individual. And that paradigm shift on its own just starts to ripple and has implications for lots of different things. And that's been at the core of everything that I've been exploring. And I feel like I'm just getting started. I mean, I I write the books because I feel like the concepts are so earth shattering because they have been for me. I know that experientially, they've been totally life-changing and I want to share it with people because it's that important. And I know, I don't know how many people I'm going to reach because some of this stuff is so out there, but I know what it did for my life. And if one other person reads one of the books and maybe like, a one sentence opens the door that can change that person's life in a positive direction. And then it can ripple because they start to change. So when I started to do that math, it's like, I've got to do this. And in many ways I was trained to be able to do projects like books or the podcast series. It was a narrative series or I had to write it all eight episodes. Like back in college, we had to write a, a senior thesis in order to graduate. Not all, So Princeton is rare in that regard. So I that was an experience that I was trained to do. And then more in my second job after leaving investment banking in New York, I, we worked with management teams and boards of directors at these companies that had innovation. So often my presentations were to these high level management positions. And that means they needed us and usually the lower level people, which for most of the time was me aggregating all the data and summarizing it so that a high level person could get the main point pretty quickly because they're busy with other things. So I had this training of how to synthesize a lot of information. So I was like, why don't I just apply this to these other areas that I think are more important on a cosmic global level? Even Not to say that my work wasn't important because it was servicing clients. It's just a different kind of importance. Right. To me, this, is a, this has a, a much bigger impact. And that's what I've decided to do each time. The other part of, of writing the books and even the podcast series is that they help me solidify my own ideas like the process of going through all the sources and and figuring out how to say things is really important because I want to be able to communicate things and and the book writing and the podcast writing process has helped with that. So it, at one level, everything I'm doing first starts with me and then I share. And that's actually my worldview is that we have to to try to be the best versions of ourselves first and foremost. And then we can be of service in some way. It's like on, on an airplane, they tell you to put on your oxygen mask first and then you go and help people. I really see life as that way. We can't ignore our own mm. development. Like we all, I, many of us, especially in this world, want to be of service. And I think it's a great thing, but sometimes that can come at the expense of ignoring our own personal development, which can be uncomfortable. So I see it as let's develop first individually and then be of service as best we can. Yeah, we had to lead by example. I am with you there. And especially when our families think we're crazy, it's quick to to put, you know, what other people think first and not worry about, well, what am I doing to be an example that others would want to follow? And, you know, I want to take a, a step to to highlight the concepts that, you know, each book, you know, takes a name, right? We have thinking, living, liberty, and contact. These are all things that people take for granted, I think. And what you're doing is sort of exposing maybe some of the, really what should be reasonable and logical 
points that are dismissed because of just maybe the way society incentivizes us to, you know, follow the leader and go with the flow and and not question or resist. Clearly, you know, these books are in a way a, an act of subtle resistance, sort of subversively, you know, opening people's perspective up. So when it comes to thinking and living, what are some examples of like ways that people are going about this upside down? Well, they are definitely rebellious books. I'm I'm continuing to challenge very basic aspects of society. So I agree with you on that. And it is always a challenge to put something out that you know a lot of people aren't going to like. That's been part of my journey is to get over that and to accept that some people aren't going to be able to handle it. Maybe they'll disagree with me, but maybe they just don't want to look and other people will. And that's like just part of my journey to accept that that's how it works and not everyone's going to like me. But in terms of the upside down thinking and living, let me preface this by saying I didn't, first of all, I didn't start this process knowing I was going to write any books, let alone multiple that had a theme of upside down. And when I wrote the first book, I actually didn't have that title. I got very lucky. I reached out, I cold emailed my now literary agent and book publisher, Bill Gladstone of Waterside Productions. And he's represented lots of authors like in the spiritual space. Eckhart Tolle is one of his clients and like people like that. And he was, he fortunately, he read my email and took me on. And he came up with the title of the first book because I'd written it. And he's like, this is an end upside down thinking. And then I used that and continued it. What you just changing the last word. And the reason he, he used that title, which I've now adopted, I think he did a great job. Thank you, Bill, is I'm challenging in that book what's known as scientific materialism, or some would call it physicalism. And I want to break this down because I used to believe this. But I didn't know I believed it. I didn't know there's, there was a name for it because it's so deeply ingrained into our scientific thinking, even the thinking we get in education and through the media. And it's the belief that the universe started around 13.8 billion years ago with some event that's typically called the Big Bang. And the, the scientific materialists would say, well, we don't know how it started, but just grant me this one miracle and we can explain everything else. That's their thinking, which ironically is a leap of faith at the beginning of it. But if we ignore that, there was this Big Bang. And the universe was filled with pieces of matter. So we start with matter, physical stuff. When you have lots of pieces of matter in a big universe, they ended up colliding with each other. <laughs> and we call that chemistry, interactions of pieces of matter. So we started with matter, now we have chemistry. And when you have lots of random chemical reactions, chance tells us that over time, you will end up with a self-replicating molecule like DNA, which leads to biological species. So now we're at biology. We started with physical matter, chemistry, now biology. And so you get species like a human being, which over time, the human develops a brain. And from the brain is this thing called consciousness that comes out of the brain. And when I say consciousness, I'm talking about our subjective inner awareness, or it's the capacity to experience of the philosopher Bernardo Castro. He sometimes calls it that which experiences Meaning that when you have a thought, for example, what is it that experiences that thought? It's the consciousness. So it's the part of us that's fundamental to our existence. If we didn't have consciousness, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation or think about why we even exist. So this is the really a critical thing. And our mainstream scientific paradigm says that consciousness fundamentally comes from matter. More specifically, it comes from a brain that's made out of matter, but it's matter and then consciousness at the end. Now, 
the reason the book's called an end upside down thinking is that I changed the position of consciousness. And when I say I, I mean, I'm one of many people to do this. I'm really summarizing the ideas of other people because I'm definitely not the first person to say this, but instead of consciousness being at the very end of the picture, it's at the beginning. And the way I draw it in a book, in, in all my books, because I use this diagram, it's adapted from the work of Dr. Dean Radin at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, who developed this like triangle where at the bottom you have matter, and then at the very top you end up with consciousness, where it's like matter, chemistry, biology, neuroscience, because you have a brain, and then consciousness at the very top. And what I do is I put consciousness at the bottom, but leave everything else, because it doesn't mean that we get rid of material science, physics, chemistry, biology, neuroscience, it just means we recontextualize them. They are within consciousness rather than the things that create consciousness. And that's the upside down thinking. And like I said before, one of the key implications is that our identity is not our body. Our identity is not the physical. The physical world is the thing that consciousness is experiencing. Some other big implications, going back to the philosopher, Dr. Kastrup, he uses this analogy that I've used many, many times, that all reality could be likened to a stream of water, an infant stream of water, where water represents consciousness. Each of us as an individual is like a whirlpool within this stream meaning that we feel like we're separate. We have a sense of being an individual, but we're fundamentally interconnected. There's this paradox. There's a collective, but there's an individual and they coexist. If you think about this analogy, to take it a step further, imagine some of the water from my whirlpool gets into your whirlpool. That would be like a telepathic ability, like consciousness from, my, from me getting into your consciousness, right? That's like telepathy or something psychic. Another implication is if one of the whirlpools stops being a whirlpool, meaning it just dissolves into the broader stream. The water doesn't leave the stream in that process. And by analogy, when a, the physical body dies, the implication is that the consciousness doesn't disappear. It just transitions into a new form and could even be recycled into a different whirlpool like reincarnation. So what I've talked about here are, are three implications of this model, which is, turns everything upside down in terms of science. One, psychic phenomena are real. Two, consciousness survives when the body dies. And three, reincarnation is real. And that's what the book gets into, is what's the scientific evidence for that? Peer-reviewed papers, there's so much evidence. The U.S. government doing psychic spying programs. The University of Virginia with over 2,500 cases of children who have memories of a previous life. Near-death experiences where a person has a lucid consciousness, even though the body's dead or clinically dead, and seeing things from above the body during that time. So all kinds of things that sound crazy, but we're very credible people have studied it. My argument is if only one of these things is real, just one of them, one study, then it means we have to rethink the materialist paradigm that consciousness comes from the brain, that it comes from matter. Whereas we could accommodate these things that sound wacky and paranormal very easily if we say that consciousness is fundamental. And actually Max Planck, the Nobel Prize winning quantum physicist, and I get into quantum physics as well because it's related. He said back in 1931, I regard consciousness as fundamental I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. This is the upside down thinking in a nutshell. And then if you apply that to how to live life, that's to your question about upside down living. That's what I do in the next book is I say, well, I start the, the book with the question, what is the overall intention of your life? And I, throughout the book, I look at this paradigm of materialism or physicalism and turn it upside down and then look at the implications and think about how should we actually live and to summarize very briefly, my old worldview would have been, well, I don't have an overall intention of my life because we're all going to die anyway. So any intention I'd come up with is irrelevant because it's like just my own rationalization. That's my old 
way of looking at living. And now I look at it very differently where it's very much evolving, but in summary, the way I think about it is that we, we should try to perfect ourselves as an individual, because when we do that, then we can be a pure vessel for this universal consciousness that we're a part of. We can be a vessel for the stream and that thereby allows us, allows us to be a better service to the overall stream of consciousness. And that's how I look at life, which is a complete reversal of what I call in my book, upside down living. And even my own upside down life is part of what I talk about in the book. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to, to think that we're in a situation where that type of thinking is, is upside down and, and maybe hundreds or thousands of years ago, it would have been different. You know, I mean, it's only the past so many years that we've even had this perspective, but we're told that, you know, the ancient peoples of the world had a, a, a far more scientific approach to living that was couched or coached with spirituality, right? And mm-hmm. and and I I guess my question is, do you think that we're heading to a point where science and spirituality will merge as one? Generally, I do think so. And I think they're after the same general goal, which is to try to explain and understand the nature of reality. That's what science is supposed to do. And that's what religion and spirituality are ultimately doing just through a different mechanism. And I do see the merger because science generally relies on things like controlled double blind studies where you can control all the variables and test things. And what I show in my books is that there are studies on this where they have examined psychic phenomena and other things in the lab where you can control certain variables and show that something's going on that we can't explain with traditional science. And whereas spirituality and religion often rely on ancient texts or anecdotal accounts, which we can't put into a lab, but sometimes when people throughout history have described very similar experiences that can be powerful when you start to aggregate the experiences. And it's something I've done in all of my books, but especially upside down living where I look at these awakening accounts of people with all different backgrounds. They talk about experiencing the oneness, the interconnectivity. They say it's very difficult to describe with words. And this is the sort of thing where science loses interest pretty quickly because they'll say, well, well, maybe you had some extreme experience, but we can explain that through the brain. And yeah, we don't understand how the brain does it, but it must come from the brain somehow. And then they'll just dismiss any supernatural explanations. And the merger is that I think science will start to maybe open up to these alternate paradigms and begin to test the phenomenon more scientifically and start to validate many of the spiritual experiences. And just quickly before I pause, I want to mention the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I mentioned Dean Radin before, who's a, who's the chief scientist there. I actually joined the board of the organization three years ago because I was so fascinated that there's an organization outside of traditional academia where you can study these things, look at telepathy, look at energy healing, and have credentialed scientists take a look, which we don't have enough of elsewhere. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Dean Radin. I have a couple of his books behind me and yeah, it's it's really interesting to to see, you know, particularly innovation in the energetic technology space because that seems to be the place where, you know, spirituality is most evident, at least to my mind. You know, when we see, you know, some of the experiments that guys like Dr. Dean Radin or or some of the people in the electromagnetic universe theory worldview 
some of the experiments that are being done there, even some of the the further out there stuff. I saw on Instagram of all places a kid doing you know what we could sum up as Tesla technology in his backyard in Alabama. I'm only saying that based on his accent, but you know we've we've reached this point where you know science is. I would say, for worse or for better, proliferated to be available to everyone, where in in the past it was sort of obfuscated by religion and, and maybe more so not spirituality, but the modicum of control that religion offered politics or, or government. And, and that's why I think it's so brilliant that your, your third book is an upside down or an end to upside down liberty because i think liberty should be taken into mind when we're talking about science because there's so many things that are going on within the the domain of science that could lead or are you know against the you know better good of human beings i mean you know some some experimentation for the past hundred years i mean there's lots of evidence you named the psychic spying program in the cia but they've done far worse in the vein of human rights so i guess to bring it to a question what what are your thoughts on science and liberty and their relationship So when I first started writing my the book and into upside down thinking, this this topic actually came up back then, because I saw all this evidence, whether it's the psychic spying program or Dean Radin's work or the UVA's work, peer reviewed papers, and I couldn't believe that the ideas were not more mainstream, because it wasn't just like a few studies here and there. It was decades of studies, and because the scientists are often ridiculed. They take great care in their studies to make sure things are properly controlled. They take into account what the skeptics are going to say. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait a second, there's a mismatch here. How are are some of the smartest minds in the world who are well-respected in the mainstream? They'll say that these ideas are crazy and that there's no evidence for these things. So I was seeing this mismatch. I'm looking at evidence and then smart people would say there is no evidence. And then I look on Wikipedia and you see someone like Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Cambridge biochemist who studied psychic abilities in animals, telephone telepathy. This is a really smart guy. They call him a pseudoscientist in his Wikipedia bio. And his his entry is semi-locked in terms of editing. So there are these things I kept seeing over and over again. I, I was hearing about scientific journals that would reject studies on psychic abilities or things like it, just on the basis of the subject matter, meaning they didn't care if the study actually showed a real effect. They weren't going to look at studies that had to do with this area. And then another example, a woman who studied these sorts of psychic phenomena at a mainstream U.S. institution, she was told that if she wanted to get tenure, she should take her psychic research off her resume because it would be (laughs) too controversial. And this is what mainstream academics are, are facing. And I actually heard on an interview somewhat recently on the podcast called Skeptico, Alex Securis, the host, interviewed Dr. Mario Beauregard, who is a neuroscientist, cognitive scientist in this area as well. He's willing to challenge the paradigm. And he talks about the organization that he's with in Canada. And one of the leaders of the organization told him, as long as I'm here, you will never study these phenomena. So there are, Somehow there's this an active suppression right. 
which gets to your question about liberty, because isn't science about the free expression of ideas and testing it against the scientific method? It doesn't appear to be that way. What, what I'm seeing more and more of, and having gotten to know some of the scientists myself, what I'm seeing is that there is a paradigm in science and you're free to do whatever you want. You have great liberty within that paradigm, but the minute you leave that paradigm, they're not going to go there. And we see that in other areas too of culture where it's like, we're so tolerant as long as it's in this domain. But as if you leave the domain, we're not going to be tolerant. Lots of these ironies and paradoxes and hypocrisy that we see. So I, I was primed with that in the consciousness space, getting to your question about liberty. I saw the lack of true expression, free expression. And then also professionally, I saw this working with inventors that there was a I don't understand how the world works exactly, but I've seen the effects of the world where you can be shut down by powerful organizations and people. And I don't see, know how it works. It definitely impacts the judiciary system. Judges are not immune to this sort of thing. The media is not immune where the media can put out false statements about you and then it becomes the status quo. And to overcome those false statements, it's really tough. And when you go against the mainstream, these forces seem to come out and you can imagine when you're dealing with innovations, if you challenge big companies because your invention might supplant them, there would be a great incentive for big companies to want to steal the invention. Like, Forget about the fact that you might have a patent on it. Let's use every legal means we can to try to destroy the patent, destroy the company. Those sorts of things are very real. And it's that's how the world of business works. It's not unexpected. But I saw it. That's my point is I saw these forces at work. I experienced it. I saw the, the negatives of it at a very visceral level where it even affected me because some of the deals I worked on were affected by these forces outside my control. And that leads to the, the book on liberty where I started to see this suppression applied to COVID science where you couldn't ask questions about injections. You couldn't ask questions about how lethal COVID was. We couldn't ask questions about, like I remember early on in the pandemic, there were doctors speaking out, ER doctors, explaining what they saw in the ER. And basically they were saying it wasn't quite as bad as the media made it out to be. They weren't saying nothing was happening. There were people that were getting sick, but they painted a very different picture. One that might have questioned whether we should lock down all of society and destroy the economy for this thing. Mm. Those people were shut down very quickly. Right. <laughs> they were Their videos were removed from YouTube. And I'm like, okay, there's a pattern here. And that starts to lead down a rabbit hole of looking at the corruption that's embedded within our world, really systemic corruption, which, as I talk about more in my contact book, might relate to metaphysical good and evil. But I want to also talk about your, your point about mind control, which is what you're alluding to, some of the experimentation that's done on people, MKUltra programs, where people's minds are not free because their personalities are being dissociated through torture techniques, really dark stuff that I'm sure your audience is familiar with, but that was new to me. I didn't realize that that experimentation was going on. And as I went down the rabbit hole more and more, I realized that this notion of liberty was really fundamental to all of it. And to me, it's a spiritual principle because if we are consciousness embodying in the physical world through the physical vessel, then what are we here to do? And I want to take a few steps back because this gets into metaphysical, how the metaphysical leads into liberty. And one of the key points I make in the Liberty book that I did I don't see as much in, in political and economic literature. I see a lot of political theory, a lot of economic theory, but not how the metaphysics ties into it. So if you look at near-death experiences, instances where a person has had some kind of trauma to the body, let's say it's cardiac arrest, 
Um, you would expect based on mainstream science that the person should have no memory during that period if they're resuscitated because their brain is barely functioning or it's completely off because in the case of cardiac arrest, blood stops flowing to the brain. We know what happens to the brain. And if there is any residual brain functioning, it shouldn't be capable of producing a clear memory. And yet what happens, as Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia told me when I interviewed him for my podcast, he said, we're left with this paradox that at a time when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. And this is what people report. They say it's realer than real. So it's not like they have some kind of hazy vision. No, it's clearer than what they usually see. Sometimes they talk about omnidirectional 360-degree vision hovering over their bodies. Sometimes they see things in the room or outside their room, which are validated upon being resuscitated. So they tell the doctor what happened. They tell family members and they say, how do you know that that happened? That was very specific and you were dead and you're describing it from above your body. That's, that's crazy. Well, it's not crazy if consciousness isn't tied to the body. And when the brain shuts off, consciousness is actually liberated, which suggests that the brain gets in the way of our experience. In any case, I, I give that preface because what happens in 20 to 30% of the time of near-death experience accounts, depending on which expert you talk to, people report a life review. They relive their whole life in a compressed amount of time. So something like, you know, Einstein's relativity theory where time can be compressed, that something must be happening because people relive their whole lives sometimes. And it's a short, it's not that long period of time. But the key here is that they become the people that they impacted. They literally become that person and they feel the effects of how you treated that person. They get to see it through that person's eyes. And one of the people I interviewed for my podcast is Daniel Brinkley who over the course of decades has had four near-death experiences. And when I interviewed him a few years ago, I was asking him about his three near-death experiences. And he, he's like, Mark, I just had a fourth. I just had another near-death like case where I think it was cardiac arrest twice, brain surgery, open heart surgery twice, brain surgery once, and he was electrocuted once. So each time he goes into this near-death state and he has a life review that starts at the beginning of his life and goes up to the time or whatever the current state is. So certain things he had to relive four times, including the traumatic events, like being the person in Vietnam that he killed when he was in combat. He got to be that person that he killed. So that had a major effect on his life. He also became the children that no longer had fathers because he had killed the father in combat. So he felt the indirect effects of his actions. So he comes back from these near-death experiences. His life has changed. He becomes a hospice volunteer. And this is very common for people who have a near-death experience. Their life changes because they experience a different reality. And they realize it's not about how big your house is or what kind of car you drive. In the life review, they say the little things are the big things. It's how you treated the cashier in line. And one of the experts I spoke with, Dr. Jan Holden from the University of North Texas, told me a story of a near-death experiencer who felt what it was like so, saw the the impact of the person's negative interactions with the cashier in line and felt how that negative interaction put the cashier in a worse mood and negatively impacted everyone else in line. So you see this ripple effect of how our actions affect people, but you also get to see the good part of it. So Daniel Brinkley, when he became a hospice volunteer in his later life reviews, he got to feel what it was like to comfort that person when he, the person was dying through through the dying person's eyes. So you feel the good and the bad. If you combine the life review with the studies on children with past life memories at the University of Virginia, which is suggestive of reincarnation. This idea that we're here to try to see how we can act towards people, and then we have a chance to reincarnate and learn. 
it suggests that we are here to evolve at the level of our consciousness. And each body gives us unique experiences to have different learning experiences in the physical realm, which we take with us after we die. That's the general idea. And to go back to Dr. Grayson from UVA, what he says about this the life review, this idea of wanting to treat people well because we're interconnected, that it's the golden rule effectively. He says that what people tell him when they come back is that it's actually beyond morality, that it's natural law. Natural law, meaning it's built into the fabric of reality somehow. If you apply this concept to the notion of liberty, tying it back to government and these sorts of things, the way we do society goes against natural law. It goes against the metaphysics. And I'll actually pause there. And if you want to ask a question, then I'll go into the the politics of this because that's a separate topic, but it's really important to this too. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I want to hear the politics. I I did have a question, but you piqued my interest with that. So go for it. Okay. We'll return to it when I stop after this one. Okay. I should preface this by saying that I was not a political person before 2020. I didn't care. I maybe cared to the extent that it affected like patent law because that affected my job. But I wasn't someone who was very in tune with, with what was going on the in the world or like pop culture or any of those things. That's changed a lot for me since I left my job and I've had a lot of time. And I've also become interested from a spiritual lens in what's happening. So I come at it from a pretty clean slate because I wasn't a Democrat coming in. I wasn't a Republican. I wanted to understand what was going on in the world because I was seeing completely different messages depending on the news station that you turned on. And then if you looked at some of these alternative podcasts, they were talking about things that weren't even on Fox News. So what's going on here? And it led me to look at the basic structure of government, which I do in an end to upside down liberty. What is government? It ultimately is a body in society that provide provides services to the citizens of a certain jurisdiction. And the services are very important things like the servicing of roads, military, court systems, the whole legal system, things like that, really important things. But when I started to break it down and listen to some opposing views on government, they pointed out that government is providing services to us, but has special privileges that most service providers don't have. So Netflix is a service provider. I was a service provider when I worked for my clients. You know, any business is providing some good or service to a customer. And typically, when you have engagements between the service provider and the customer, there's a contract that specifies what the service provider is supposed to do. And what happens if the service provider fails to provide those services and what the pricing structure is going to be. These are all very explicit things. And if you apply that to government, which is a service provider too, we don't have that kind of explicit relationship. It's more like implied consent. And this is really critical, that it's not an explicit contractual relationship where the government is like, we're going to provide all these things for you. This is how you can terminate. We are beholden to the service provider. And it creates a structure where you have rulers. There are rulers and it's compulsory rather than voluntary. This is the critical issue, which if you're any of your audience members are new to it, it's radical and it will take time for this to ripple through your own thinking because I remember how long it took me to, to realize it, but this is critical. It's not explicitly voluntary, our relationship with our government. Like you could leave, but then try with expatriation to avoid taxes, like good luck with that. And then you'll just be under the jurisdiction of a different ruler because that's the way our world works. It's known as statism 
that's the paradigm. Just like scientific materialism or physicalism is the paradigm for metaphysics, our political paradigm is statism. We have these states that are rulers. It doesn't mean everyone that's in government is bad, but we have this unilateral relationship where things can be imposed on us. And as Dr. Hans Hermann Hoppe, an economist says, they can change the rules of the game during the game. <laughs> they can charge whatever they want for their services and we have to pay it. Even if we find the government's actions immoral, we have to fund those actions. Whereas with a typical service provider, you are voluntarily paying for something. You want that service. So I'm going to pay for it. You have an issue with plumbing in your house, you hire a plumber and you pay for the plumber. We don't hire the government in the same way. So I'm repeating this to just show that there's this, it's an imbalanced relationship. And when you have a governing body that can legally enact coercion upon its citizens, that is problematic because it opens the door for the violation of the golden rule, which is the spiritual principle we see in the near-death experience in the life review. That's the critical thing. The government can, can coerce people to do things. They can force people to do things that they didn't sign up for explicitly, whether it's through taxation, whether it's through anything you can imagine. Some people point to conscription, which is forcing people to go into the military, like Murray Rothbard, one of the political philosophers I cite a lot. He says, this could conscription, which is forcing people to go into combat against their will, if they don't want to do it. Some people want to do it, and I totally appreciate that. But I'm saying, if you didn't want to do it and you're forced to, that's like a form of slavery, forced work that you didn't ask to do, where you're actually, your life is in danger. So I'm just, I'm, again, I'm pointing to these things that are assumptions we typically don't challenge and and it becomes problematic from a spiritual lens that's my main point with government and that's why the book's called end upside down liberty because i go through each of these challenges and even apply it to the economy because when we have a central planner which we tend to think of as this benevolent thing because the government wants the economy to be really good and they want a, a booming economy we have a federal reserve that's supposed to help all these things the problem is, again, you have a unilateral relationship where they can pull the levers on the economy. You didn't ask for that explicitly. And what if the their levers that they pull help some people, but they hurt you? And then you are less able to live freely because of that. Um, I talk. There's this whole school of economics that I talk about in the book. It's called the Austrian School of Economics. And there's an organization called the Mises Institute, named after Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard, M-I-S-E-S, -E and it's Mises.org. They have free books written by these amazing philosophers, economics for beginners, YouTube videos. So I highly recommend it if you're interested in the economics. But it gets to the same idea of like, why is there this central planner that doesn't doesn't know what every single person wants in the economy, and yet it's going to pull the levers unilaterally and could hurt people. This is another form of aggression against people. And the, the principle that I talk about in the book before I pause, it's known in political theory as the non-aggression principle, which is this idea that you shouldn't initiate any form of aggression against a person's body or the property that they own, where aggression could be defined as physical violence, fraud, theft, coercion, extortion, anything like that. It shouldn't be initiated. But if that though, if aggression is initiated against you and your property, then you have a right to self-defense to defend that. That's the whole principle. To me, that's a spiritual principle applied to politics. And if you believe in the non-aggression principle, which I actually think most people do believe in, then you can't believe in government <laughs> because government by its nature, the way we do it in society violates the non-aggression principle because it can do things you didn't ask them to do. It initiates aggression against people's bodies sometimes or their property. Money is property because it's something that you actually own. And you know, this shakes up how we think about governance.
So the way I, what I propose in the book is what's called voluntarism, which is let's just live by the non-aggression principle. And it leads to things like fully free markets, allowing people to do what they want as long as they're not harming others. And that's ultimately the argument of the book. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think capitalism, the love of money has sort of, you know, stained free enterprise and its potential to be a truly human thing. But when it comes to these paradigms that we've been basically, you know, cordoned off into as as people, at least in this Western society, just speaking for this country, maybe, what do you, do you think it's incentive? Do you think it's ignorance? I mean, what it, what is the main, or is it is it intentional? Have we been sort of born into a a, a system like you said, a, a game where they can just swap out the rule book when when necessary at their will? What do you think really put us here? It's a great question. It's one that I still try to wrestle with, and it goes back to the question of consciousness. Even like, why is the consciousness science suppressed? Why is there seem to be this desire to suppress our inherently spiritual nature and the fact that we have these psychic abilities and all these things where the individual is very powerful? There's a theme here because government inherently, the way we do it, suppresses the power of the individual and can shut people down. If the government says you're a threat, they get to define morality. Now, why is that? Is it because there is a dark force that implements things through the media and through the government, metaphysical force even? I'm increasingly open to that. I also think there are more maybe naturalistic explanations to it, which is that human beings allow this stuff to happen. There's this psychological desire to be taken care of, this desire to have what some would call mommy and daddy to take care of us. Like if there's a problem in society, oh, government's going to take care of it. But what's government? It's just a bunch of human beings with no financial incentive because if they do a bad job, they still get paid anyway. Whereas in the free market, if you do a bad job, so you're going to someone's going to hire a different party or they might go out of business. So you don't have that accountability with government and people like haven't thought these things through. So to me, it's like, it's both sides of it is that the people have allowed this to happen, but then there seems to be a force that is encouraging it and suppressing our inherent freedom. And what I'm thinking more and more, this is just a growing hypothesis is that like part of our evolution as a society is to break through these mental chains and to become fully free in every way, spiritually, but also in the physical realm in terms of how we do society. And maybe it's part of the spiritual journey is that we have these forces that are dark and some would even call them evil that exist. And that's part of it. And some of it can become conspiratorial, totally true, but it also gives us an opportunity to evolve at the level of our consciousness. So in that regard, evil exists, yes, but it's also a mechanism for us to evolve. And at that, from that lens, maybe it's like a cosmic conspiracy where we need to have this challenge in order to evolve, but it's not all roses because if we don't evolve past it, then we could, it could lead to lots of suffering. And we've seen this with, you know, horrific things like communist regimes, fascist regimes, and some of the horrific stuff that you probably cover on the show that exists. And if we, if we don't transcend it, then there will be probably more suffering than is necessary. Yeah, I I agree. I think there's there's definitely a part of, you know, cosmic conspiracy, especially that's talked about on this show. I I think that you know, humans in cohorts with maybe some sort of dark entity, you know, that seems to be an explanation that satisfies some people, you know, 
it it would take some historian to go back and and track down exactly you know which beings interacted with whom in the past but you know over the past 100 years we've seen at least in a in the United States UFO sightings escalate there's the famous 1950s flyover where supposedly you know the white house was flown over and and they hovered over the the white house for I think a few minutes, this fleet of UFOs, unidentified flying objects. Has it ever crossed your mind that maybe the government that's, you know, basically taking our liberties away from us little by little in this gradual process, do you think maybe they they intended differently in the beginning and, and maybe were infected from the inside like a parasite, maybe, you know, a, another group or, or an alien entity of some kind? Another great question. I cover this a little bit in the, the contacts book. So you can see the progression of the books because it, if you acknowledge that non-human intelligences exist and maybe beyond our ordinary perception, like our eyes can't see them always because they're in other dimensions, but they might influence this dimension. They might influence our consciousness because our consciousness is invisible. And if our brain's sort of like an antenna, we might be tapping into these forces all the time and not even realize it. Or like you suggest, sometimes maybe people are intentionally and I talk about this in the contact book, some of the really dark stuff, like the ritual abuse to try to bring about torture and fear, which dissociates a personality and then makes the person more susceptible, perhaps, to these other dimensions and these other beings that might actually be able to almost like possess a person. I think all these things are very real. I don't, it, because it's so secretive and invisible, it's really hard to grasp like what the exact influences are, how much of it is explicit, like certain people in power are tapping into these beings. And that's the reason the way the world is. Or is it possible that some people are being influenced and don't even realize it and they actually have good intentions? This is what I've been, like since my last book came out, the contact book, I've been wondering this more and more because I'm seeing people who are really smart and I actually think they mean well, but the things they're advocating are pure evil and anti-human, but they don't see it that way. They see it as, oh, we're trying to be benevolent and compassionate. And is that because they're somehow at the level of consciousness, not discerning these energies and inadvertently tapping into something dark. And if you combine that with people who are explicitly tapping into the dark, you end up with this system that we have today, a control system that seems to want to control human beings more and more and suppress our innate spirituality. Yeah. And, and it, it really, you know, brings up the question of subjectivity and objectivity when we're talking about consciousness, because we have you know, people, like you say, who think that they're in the, the, you know, all of the altruistic qualities of a person doing the best they can. But when you really look at, you know, the the deeper meaning of their agenda, it's, it's not good. I mean, that's very broad strokes. We can surely get into some examples. But my question is, you know, studying consciousness as much as you have, how much of our reality is fixed? I mean, are we living in a sort of subjective, like ever-changing matrix, constantly, you know, twisting and turning like the butterfly effect suggests, you know, every little thing creates a whole new potentiality stream that bursts off into another direction? I mean, what, what are we, what are we experiencing, especially when you look at these alien encounters, because you know, some people would argue, oh, that's just subjective. That person's a lunatic or they're dreaming or they're on drugs or that could only happen to them for whatever strange thing that's going on with them. What do you say to that? 
Well, the, the purpose of the contact book is to show that we're not alone ultimately and aggregate many, many cases of people that have experienced non-human intelligences. So I'll give one example, and then I want to go to your question about like splitting off realities too. But John Mack, head of the psychiatry department at Harvard, Pulitzer Prize winner, can't be any more credible than that. And he studied the allegations of people who were abducted by alien beings. There were genetic procedures done where sperm and eggs were taken. And people talk about a hybridization program where the aliens are actually creating a being that's part alien, part human. And the people were sometimes even interacting with their offspring on these crafts. This is a Harvard guy talking about it and writing detailed case studies. He wrote a book called Abduction, published in 1994. He goes through some of the most powerful case studies, like a psychiatrist would. I mean, this is very scientific. And then he wrote a book called Passport to the Cosmos, which came out a few years later. What I would say is that there's just so much evidence, and the details are extremely bizarre. They're consistent, sometimes in children, but across cultures. Sometimes you look at ancient mythology and ancient accounts, biblical accounts, for example. They all start to sound very similar to some of the things that are happening today, whether it's accounts relating to UFOs, or even accounts like a near-death experience where people will encounter beings of light, deceased relatives, spiritual beings, the psychedelic DMT, dimethyltryptamine, in Rick Strassman's study from the University of New Mexico. He was surprised to find that people were encountering beings, intelligent beings, while their body was still with him, their consciousness went to another dimension. And they had experiences that were just like the abduction accounts that John Mack was studying in this other dimension. So John Mack actually endorsed Rick Strassman's book, but down to the species, sometimes insectoid beings, reptilian beings, gray aliens, stuff that sounds insane, but it's being reported very often. So what I think is that there's a lot of evidence. Will I like stake everything on one case? No, but when you aggregate everything, it's hard to shoot all of them down. But going to your point about like, what what is this reality? Are things fixed? My first thought is to point to some of the research on between lives. And I actually came across this very early in my research in 2016. One of the first books I read was a book by Robert Schwartz. I wouldn't call it a scientific book in that it's not like a controlled study, but he tried to apply a generally scientific approach to something that sounds insane, which is the idea that when our body dies, not only do we reincarnate, but there's a period between lives during which the person chooses the next life. and Based on the accounts that people report, sometimes it's an explicit choosing, like you decide, I want to go into this body. And other times it might be more coerced, like you're sort of like you've got to go into this body. I've heard different accounts of this. Some of the accounts from the University of Virginia of children with past life memories, they also report between lives memories. So they're, you know, some credible people have looked at this. But anyway, Robert Schwartz's book, which he started to look at through the lens of hypnosis, where he would help people who had some kind of fear or issue in their life regressed them using hypnosis, took them back to a past life, but also took them back to a period and took their consciousness to a period between lives, which Michael Newton, many others have done this too. But in his book, he takes a different approach. He doesn't use hypnosis. He works with psychics who are able to tune in to the soul of a person that's had some kind of major life trauma. And the, what he did was he interviewed the soul of the person through the psychic and he had multiple psychics that he interviewed for the same person that had a life trauma. And the question he would ask in the book was, did this person who had some horrible trauma, cancer, like the worst things you could imagine, each one he's got a chapter, did the person plan this before birth? And if so, why? And the answer in each case through the psychics was that the person did plan the trauma before birth. And that the person knew they were going to have this 
difficult experience, but it was for the purpose of soul growth and ultimately to get to self-love, which from the human lens sounds insane, but from the higher perspective of the soul, it's a different view where they actually want the evolution. Now here we're getting to your question about whether things are fixed or not, because I remember reading that book six years ago and there was this notion of like a checkerboard of possibilities. So the person would have certain aspects of their life that were fixed. Like you're born into this body, into this family. And because of that, you're going to have certain experiences and maybe certain struggles or triumphs, but you get to choose which direction you go. And there was one case of a woman who had, I believe it was breast cancer. I read this a long time ago, so I don't remember the specifics, but she kept having breast cancer multiple times. Like she would have maybe surgery to, to get rid of it, but it kept coming back. And it came back until she realized her life lesson, which was about the fact that she cared too much about her appearance and didn't have true self-love. And it wasn't until she had that realization that her cancer went away. And I hope I'm representing the story properly, but it's something along those lines. And I'll give another example that I know even better. Anita Morjani, New York Times bestselling author, famous for her near-death experience where she was dying of cancer. And in her near-death experience, when she was about to die, she encountered her deceased father and she realized that she needed to change her mindset. And, and care less about what other people thought and set boundaries better. She had this mental shift, was resuscitated, and her tumors disappeared. So she had a learning and she was able to live life differently. This gets to a broader notion of what's fixed and what's determined versus what can be chosen. And it seems to me that there's a combination at one level of reality. Certain things that we can't avoid that are going to happen to us regardless, but they're like choice points. So we might have a challenge, but we get to choose how we react to it. And that's at one level of reality, the level of there's a me and a you that are separate. It's very dualistic. At another level of reality, people would say, well, we don't even exist, Mark, because there's just one consciousness. And at that level of reality, there's no individual going through these struggles and there is only one consciousness. So all of the free will is built into that one consciousness and there is no individual. So the individual can't have free will to some degree. So what I always wonder is what's the relationship between the whirlpool and the stream? Because to me, the stream, if it is the basis of reality, has infinite free will. And maybe that free will is flows into the whirlpool in some degree that we are exercising as vehicles of the full stream. And it might ultimately be beyond, be beyond human comprehension. And this notion of splitting off realities, like I'm open to all of that because I don't think we can comprehend the way it actually works. Wow. Yeah, I I love this uh, analogy of a river. It brings to mind, you know, you know, a, a river can flow essentially anywhere. It has infinite possibilities. One day it yeah. might be flowing south, and then a, a geo, you know, activity happens, and a mountain rises up, and next thing you know, this river's flowing towards the north, right? But those whirlpools will always follow that golden ratio, no mm. matter which direction the river's going the whirlpools that form in it will follow a sort of fixed natural law. I mean, that kind of, to me, a little elaborates a little bit upon what you're saying, but yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to, to consider the, the quandary that we're in here. But when you sort of start to take things from the consciousness first perspective, a lot of what we would call phenomena, paranormal phenomena starts to make a little more sense, you know, and right. I wonder if you've extrapolated consciousness further and, you know, what are your thoughts on 
the consciousness of a, a plant or an amoeba or even the entire earth as an organism? Well, there's an increasingly popular idea. It's called panpsychism. And there are different versions of panpsychism, but one of them that's very popular, it's known as constitutive panpsychism, meaning that each of the constituent pieces of matter has consciousness. So the problem with it is that it's still materialistic. It starts with matter and it says consciousness pops out of these pieces of matter. And therefore an amoeba would be conscious because it's the the combination of all the consciousnesses of those atoms to form an amoeba. I look at it differently which is that consciousness is fundamental. And then everything that we call physical actually isn't even physical. It's only an interpretation. We can't validate the physical world without our consciousness. Like, so this is an argument. I, I want to I harp on this because it's really important, but it's complex and it took me a while for it to sink in. It's from Dr. Bernardo Castro. He's written a book called Why Materialism is Baloney and also a book called The Idea of the World which elaborates on this thing that I'm going to just summarize. The materialist view that there was a big bang and then consciousness came later. That view presupposes that there was a time when there was no consciousness at all. Consciousness came afterwards. That is possible, but it is by definition unverifiable. Why? Because in order to verify something, you need a consciousness. And if there was no consciousness there, we don't know if it, if it happened. So that leaves a problem with any any metaphysics that starts with matter and then says consciousness comes later. It creates what Castro calls an ontological category that requires all sorts of assumptions to know that that would even exist. Whereas the category of consciousness, we all know it because we have it. We have it right now at this very moment. Consciousness is a ca an ontological category we know. The world of matter that exists independently and outside of consciousness is by definition unknown and unverifiable. So that's why I, one of the reasons, in addition to all the, the reality of paranormal phenomena and quantum physics, that I start with consciousness. The argument in philosophy is Occam's razor. It's the simplest solution because it requires the fewest assumptions. We can start with consciousness and explain everything. We don't need to imply or, or suggest that there is this unknown quantity of matter and a universe that existed outside of and before consciousness. We don't need to even postulate that. We can explain it all with consciousness. And so that's why I start with consciousness. And it also aligns with people's experiences. They say very similar things. I haven't experienced it myself in this way, but in near-death state, a psychedelic state, meditation, they talk about a one field that they're a part of. Now, if you buy that as your metaphysics, some call it idealism, that's the technical terminology, then the material world, is not actually material, but it, it appears to be material. We perceive it that way. Our eyes show it to us and we do this complex interpretation that there's a chair here in this room and there's a tree outside over there. Those are just interpretations. So from this lens, there is a material world that is experiencing, there, there's a consciousness that is experiencing the material world through various vehicles. And to me, it experiences it through all forms of matter through an amoeba, through a plant, through a human, through an animal. It's just those are different vehicles for the consciousness to have a targeted experience. Now with animals, there's, there's good evidence for this with Dr. Sheldrake's studies. He shows that animals seem to know when they're, like dogs in particular, but other animals too, they know when their owners are coming home. And the way he tested this is that he had the film, he had a camera on a dog 
at home when the owner was sent far away at a randomly determined time in a taxi cab miles away. And they had a camera on the, the woman, the dog owner. And when she mentally decides, okay, it's time for us to go home because the experimenter says, okay, you're going to go home now. She starts walking to the taxi. The dog goes to the window more often than not in a statistically significant manner. So this suggests that the animal has some kind of consciousness, which pet owners would agree with having animals, but also there's some evidence with plants. I would say it's not quite as strong and it hasn't been tested as much, but I talk about this in my book on upside down living. Cleve Baxter, who did lie detection for the CIA, he put his lie detector on plants. <laughs> and at first it wasn't working. So he said, all right, I'm just going to burn this, this leaf of the plant with a, with a lighter. And when he had the true intention to do that, the, th the lie detector spiked that was connected to the plant. And he, he wrote in his book, Primary Perceptions is the name of the book, that his life changed at that point. So he ran other studies on it and the plant seemed to react. Like he developed this connection with the plant where it would react to his emotions when he was far away from it. And you know, this comports with the idea that many psychics talk about, that they're able to communicate with plant beings. I mean, I don't personally experience that, but people say it. So all this is to suggest that consciousness is operating through the material world, just in ways that are different. And maybe we can't even relate to the ways that it operates through a plant, but it seems that there is some life embedded in everything. Yeah, I, I myself, you know, I think of myself as sort of more of a, a reasoning person rather than an experiencing person. You know, I, I, I reason my way through a lot of this thinking and and I rely on other people's experiences to understand this. And I, I feel like you you resonate with that. Is that true? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that you're always setting goals for yourself. So my question is, what's your, your next goal? I mean, do you wish to experience this? Because I would make the assumption that you're more like me and, and you sort of see the, your way through it in a, what is it, left brain sort of way rather mm -hmm. than a right brain sort of way? Yeah. I think we're, we're alike in that sense. I mean, my path has been mostly intellectual. Like I want to understand it and be able to explain it to people and explain it to skeptics. Right. Because I was a skeptic when I started. I didn't just believe it overnight, but I have had some experiences that are worth mentioning. I started to have lots of synchronicities. I talk about them in the living book because I go through more of my personal journey in that book. But weird coincidences where my, my rational mind was like, the numbers don't add up. This is beyond chance. And they kept happening over and over again. I, I would write them down in my, in my iPhone. Like I would have notes just keeping track of all the synchronicities. Very strange things that were powerful to me. And then also I started to get more into meditation over time. I went on a few meditation retreats when I was transitioning out of my job. So early 2020, before lockdowns, I went on two meditation retreats. They were silent, roughly a week long, a little under a week. No gesturing at people, no technology. Very difficult for me to do, but I started to feel energy for the first time. And I had two experiences actually outside the retreats where some, like the density of my body was overtaken by a very light energy. And it felt like, I guess I would call it love, something very blissful, but it was only brief. I thought I was going to die. My body shut it down both times. Crazy, like very crazy feelings and very difficult to describe, but I had the experience. It was a glimpse. I would not call it anything close to what many other people have experienced. I am not very caught up on having the experiences. In a lot of ways, I don't really care because number one, if I believe my current hypothesis about our existence, that we are a consciousness inhabiting a body that has amnesia, 
meaning there's a lot that we actually know at some level of our consciousness, but it's blocked out, then those experiences are things that I have had on a soul level, maybe an infinite number of times. So I just have forgotten it. Like all of us, we've forgotten it. So what do I really need to have it? Is it the problem with searching for experiences? I see this a lot in the spiritual community is that it becomes its own like materialistic distraction. You start to go for the experience rather than maybe the philosophy that allows for the experience. And to me, that underlying philosophy is more important because it's about our evolution. Now that said, sometimes the experiences can accelerate your evolution too. And that's also valuable, but I have not been too caught up in it. My perspective is if like, if it happens, then it happens. I'm not going to force it. There's a quote I use in my book from a podcast called Buddha at the gas pump hosted by Rick Archer. And he interviews people that have awakening experiences, typically ordinary people, but sometimes scientists too. And what he shows is that these awakening experiences that people have talked about in religions, they're happening all the time. And it's pretty crazy. I, before my writing my second book, I would listen to like multiple episodes a day and they're sometimes two hours long to hear people's experiences. And I'm like, okay, you know, these are very real experiences. Anyway, what Rick says, the host of the show is that spiritual awakening is an accident, but spiritual practice can make you accident prone. Meaning if you get in the spiritual, like if you get the four pathways I often talk about are the pathway of wisdom, pathway of selfless service, devotion, meaning love for the divine, and then energy practices like meditation Qigong, physical yoga. So wisdom, selfless service, devotion, energy. Those are types of spiritual practice. If you engage in those spiritual practices and make it an important part of your life, then you're more likely to have a spontaneous experience of the oneness. And that seems to be the case when you look at all this stuff. So that's where I am with it, is that there's so many other things I'm interested in. I want to I want to learn what's going on. And maybe that's my journey. Maybe other people for them, it's going to be more experiential or maybe at a different stage, I'm going to have more experiences, but it's not something I, I feel like I'm chasing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I resonate with that. I, I think you're pursuing wisdom and, and yeah. you know, experience can serve its purpose. And then, you know, we have to be aware when it stops doing such because, you know, all things can be used and overused, right? And I think that's the point you're you're making there. And I agree. I, I think, you know, specifically when it comes to some of these really powerful psychedelic experiences, there, there's a certain percentage of people who have the experiences and then it's not enough. And mm. there's this sort of, you know, habitation or behavioral sort of coping that's going on. And it's interesting because I don't know if it's the plant that's to blame in those cases. And I don't know if this is, you know, outside of what you've looked into. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this though, but it seems like set and setting are extremely important because, you know, obviously not everybody has our best interests in mind. And, and, you know, it seems like at least from conversations we've had on this show, there are certain people who have experienced like a commercialized, systematic kind of, oh yeah, keep coming back and having more trips with us when the intention is to have one and done, as you put it, mm -hmm. you know, learn what you're there to learn and move on with your life, integrate it, don't get hung up. Yes, very important topic. It's something I cover in my in book and end upside down living. I have a chapter on cautions in the spiritual journey. And I mentioned psychedelics in this context, which I think 
can be very beneficial to some people, but there's potential harm. And it all comes down to one of my favorite quotes from Dr. David Hawkins, a spiritual teacher who was a psychiatrist, like one of the top psychiatrists in New York. And then he had a spiritual awakening, left society, like became the oneness living in seclusion. And he wrote some very, I think, advanced books about it. But he warned people, his students, he would say, beware of glamorous seductions. There is an allure of the things that seem glamorous. This could be the occult. This could be the beings that you experience in psychedelics. Because then you start, your goal starts to change. He, he would always say, like, I'm teaching you the path to enlightenment. You can learn about the astral dimensions, but why waste your time with that? Unless there's a reason for wanting to learn that. And so some of these things, if they're not used properly, can be distractions. That's my sense. As someone who hasn't had one of these blowout experiences, because someone else might say, like, Mark, I had this experience on DMT. I was the one that's changed my life. And I'm not disputing that. So I think there's a place for all this. But it does seem that set and setting is critical to it. And and the intention of the people or like who are administering the medicines like there's it seems like there's ancient wisdom and people that really know the nuances of this stuff because when you start dealing with other dimensions as i've learned more i'm more and more wary of the other dimensions and the possibility for trickster entities beings that appear to be benevolent but we can't we don't perceive it or we get we get fooled and i talk about this again in the living book in my chapter on cautions i talk about the phenomenon of channeling which is a real phenomenon there's a book by Helene Wabe from the Institute of Noetic Sciences came out recently called The Science of Channeling. There's science that people's brains or their bodies somehow can, can pick up like an antenna, other intelligences, and through their vocal cords, that being will speak through the person. And I know people that do this, they become a different person. The cadence, the language they use changes. And it can be a real phenomenon. And, and what the researchers say is that it it it, ha, it is not pathological. Some would say it's just multiple personalities, but they've looked at it. And they think it's actually a real phenomenon. But I mention this because the, the woman I, I quote in my book on channeling, she was channeling beings. She thought they were helping her because they were these advanced beings in other dimensions. She was bringing them through. And then they started giving her advice. And at one point they said that she should quit her job which she was a little concerned about. She wasn't sure if it was a good decision, but these were advanced beings. She said, okay, I'm going to quit my job. And she said it ended up being a terrible decision. And then the beings started laughing and told her that she should kill herself. So these were tricksters, which you see all the time with the UFO phenomenon. It's one of the big issues that, that the, some of these entities might be so much more advanced and they have an ability to shapeshift and do mind control that we can't, we can't compete with that. And if you start like listening to everything that one of these beings says, as if it's the word of God, and this is the only thing I'm going to listen to, then that can be a danger because then there, there could be a lack of discernment that can lead people on a difficult path. And I say that with psychedelics because people encounter beings with ayahuasca. They talk about mother ayahuasca that guides them through the process. And it seems like it's a benevolent being and it, it might actually be like there are benevolent beings too, I think. I just mentioned all this because there are cautions that I wouldn't have considered until I researched all this and people just kept warning me about it. Of like, you can't just go into this blind because some of these beings have been around for a very, very long time and they know how to fool people and they fooled a lot of people. And maybe they actually get benefit from our, if we have a spiritual fall and, and fear and suffering, they might actually feed off of that. So there might be an incentive to be fooled. And I'm just, I'm harping on the downside here because you hear a lot of the other part of this, 
the positives right. of these substances and they can help with PTSD. We're seeing the studies, Rick Doblin's maps and MDMA, like ecstasy helping people with PTSD. Like these things are definitely beneficial in some cases, but there's the other side that we have to be aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we see it in nature. You have mushrooms that can offer this experience. You can also be unfortunate enough to find a mushroom that'll take your life from you. You know, nature has all sorts of tricks and we shouldn't assume that the invisible realms don't follow those same rules. You know, there are you know, parasitic entities even who may want to, yeah, exactly, take our energy from us because that's how they survive. And yeah, it, it's interesting because in one turn, this scientific understanding of the mind and its ability to channel being validated sort of, well, it, it implies that maybe these prophets and, and holy people of the past were not particularly, you know, doing something all that, you know, tremendously unknown. Like now we're starting to understand how this sort of thing could take place, albeit scientifically, it still doesn't leave us with any lucidity on what the intentions of these beings were. But, you know, I think humans have, have mucked it up too, but it's interesting, you know, I, I've heard many different channelings. I'm not a subscriber to any one channeler, but one book that really stood out was this book called the Urantia book. And what was so interesting about it was when it was channeled, the information that was in the book shouldn't have been readily available. So at least to my, you know, mind it seemed like you know, how did this guy figure out all this stuff about nebulas and space? I mean, they weren't correct totally, but they at least had a, an understanding of astronomy that wasn't typical for someone who channeled that. So when I learned that, I was like, hmm, it's very interesting. It's, it's neat to know that it's being validated, but it doesn't give me any comfort because, you know, we, we, we still don't know what's on the other side. Right. If you have a very intelligent being that is intentionally manipulative, it could give you correct information to lure you in. Right. And then wait for the, the you know, 99% correct, and then that 1% can lead you astray. So doc, Dr. David Hawkins, the spiritual teacher I mentioned, who, who warned about the allure of glamorous seductions, he also was very wary of channeling. And he, he would say things like, there are plenty of good spiritual teachers in the world throughout history that you can read about or even meet. And you can see them. So it's a little bit easier to gauge, even though you also have to exercise discernment. So he's like, we have enough good wisdom here. You don't have to go to these other beings to get wisdom. And then at the same time, it's possible that some of these beings are feeding us technologies or who knows what. I mean, when I, like before I write my books, before I even write a word or type the first word, I always set the intention that I'm going to be a vessel for whatever's for the highest good. And if there are benevolent beings that can work through me as a vessel, that like I'm here for that because my intelligence is limited as a human being. So I do think that there like are these positive forces that can help us too. It's just a matter of, I don't being really careful with it. And I, I think I've become more and more concerned as I've learned more about these other dimensions and how little we know, because it's easy to take the human perspective and then just conclude, okay, this is safe to do because of my limited knowledge and not realize all these ways that we're missing something. And the potential downside to me is very potentially severe. 
because it could be that our soul that's at stake or our soul development. And you don't want to accrue potentially negative karma because you take the bad advice or something. So I'm just, I don't know. Like I'm very wary. I feel the same way. I've had many conversations about psychedelics on this show and a typical suggestion I'll get from listeners afterwards is, oh, Mark, why don't you try it? You know, and I've had my experiences in the past with certain drugs, but in, in particular, DMT is what people have encouraged me to try. And I personally have never heard anything that makes me interested in experiencing it. I, I don't like the prospect of interacting with machine elves of any kind. And, you know, the fact that it's somewhat man-made or, or altered by man also bothers me. I would be more inclined to try DMT through, like, the toad route or the ayahuasca vine route, you know, rather than sort of this whatever it is that they're putting in cartridges these days or, right. or, or that powdered substance. But yeah, it, it it's, you know, it's interesting because it seems like it's being promoted more than ever. And, you know, whether it's a class war or purely for profits, you know, drugs seem to be used as a weapon against us more often than not. And I really respect you for you know, waiving those cautions because psychedelics could possibly lead to, you know, a situation where they're being weaponized in some context. I don't think it, it worked in the way that they had hoped, like specifically when we're looking at the 1960s, it seems like acid was potentially weaponized and it worked to some degree, but more often than not, people seem to have, you know, fallen away from the programming they were trying to instill rather than tap into it. I mean, there were people who were driven to insanity, but I think for the most part, people didn't go along with the what the CIA intended when they were spiking people's drinks. Right. You know? Right. And using psychedelics for mind control. Right. So there's a history of using these substances to mess with people or to sear consciousness in a certain way. And at the same time, it does open people up where that one psychedelic experience, all of a sudden they're interested in spirituality or something. Like I've heard this from people that maybe they read my first book, End Upside Down Thinking, and they're a mainstream thinker, but then had a psychedelic experience and say, Mark, I, I think your book validates what I personally experienced. And then the person becomes more interested in having a life shift. So there could be benefits to this too. It's just like anything. I mean, technology has benefits or downsides. I mean, like transhumanism is one that everyone's talking about. And maybe there are some ways that it could be beneficial, but there are a million ways that it could go wrong. Well, and it seems like consciousness on the point of evolving, it it's it's resisted by evil, but it's never succumbed to evil. You know, it seems like yeah. like we as human beings have this capacity to overcome, you know, if, if there was one tribute or trait that we have, it would be our like underdog ability, right? Like human beings can, can overcome some really incredibly dire situations. And what's been happening over the course of the past, I don't know, a couple thousand years, it seems like a, a sort of processing to process our consciousness into a, a state of subservience to ruling elite. And I wonder, 
do you think that that's in vain? I mean, whether or not you believe that to be true or not, do you think the the consciousness could ever be ensnared like that? Or do you think we're inherently free will, you know, meant to be Mm -hmm. free will? and, And it's sort of like this inalienable right that's built into consciousness. I lean towards what you're saying, that there is a part of us that can never be fully enslaved, but I'm moving. I'm, I'm less and less certain of that the more I research. And let's just say like that could be true, but then what if the soul can be trapped such that the essence is still free, but it's stuck in a, a reincarnation cycle because it's not evolving properly based on the way society's structured and people are making bad decisions. And then they get, they start to accrue karma because they're making those bad decisions and they end up getting stuck in a, a cycle. So in my book, An End Upside Down Contact, I contemplate this a little bit by looking at some of the ancient scriptures. And I point to the Nag Hammadi texts. So these, were, I, were not, I was not familiar with them until the last few years. They were found in 1945 in Egypt by farmers who were looking for manure in the ground. And they found this jar of bound book from second, third, fourth century AD. And what the historians say is that these were buried because they were heretical teachings relative to the traditional Christian teachings of the time, which makes me think that there might be some real wisdom in these books. So I I wanted to check them out. And they talk about origin stories because they were translated for the first time in English in 1977. So these are pretty new and they're known as being related to the Gnostic Christian tradition. And there are three in particular, probably some others too. There's one called the secret gospel of John. Another is called on the origin of the world and another is called the nature of the rulers. And they paint a similar picture which is that there was one oneness and even they call it in the translation, the one, which that's very similar to my metaphysics, my worldview that there's this one consciousness. And then there were these luminary beings that spawned off of it. So maybe like whirlpools, if you want to call them that. And from one of the luminaries, there was a being called Sophia. So she's a descendant of the one, but an individuation still. And the story is that she had a rogue son who created the world that we inhabit this material realm named Yaldabaoth. And the goal of this rogue son, it was not benevolent. It was to suppress our inherent connection because we had this connection to Sophia and to the oneness. And, and there was a desire to keep that from us. And one of the quotes, I mentioned it both in the Liberty book and the contact book. I'll paraphrase it here. What, what the text says is the rulers kept humanity in a state of confusion and toil so that they would be preoccupied with the things of the world and not have time to focus on the Holy Spirit, which is like, sounds a lot okay, like what we're in today. <laughs> that, that describes the world that we live in. Exactly. And that quote was from the time of, of man leaving the garden. Right. So the suggestion here is that this is ancient and there might be a, so th- this gets to your question at some level, the essence of us as, as humans, if you believe this to be a true story and not just myth, then the essence of the human is there, the spiritual part of us that can connect to the higher realms, but it's being suppressed actively. And the goal is for us to transcend that, I guess. And so maybe that's, that's part of this journey. Another, this is another way of saying that we're here to evolve. Right. We're here to get past these dark forces and be able to see through it. Yeah. Wow. It's incredible. And, you know, 
when I was just a, a young man listening to like underground rap and I'd hear like terms like prison planet, I I didn't quite understand what it meant until you sort of see it in this context of, of the metaphysical full scope of like, we are, you know, spiritual beings trapped in a human experience that could have been manipulated in some point in our past to sort of... Sh- fall astray from the natural order of things, the natural arc of, of what it might be to to go through this spiritual experience through the human vessel, you know, and maybe that's out of the jealousy of the, you know, the fallen angels or whoever, you know, these entities may be. But ultimately, if we're to get, you know, all quagmired about this situation, it's really only going to stagnate. Where, where what your books do is show people the route forward. And that's why I really appreciate like the totality of this conversation because it's been, you know, usually we have the moment towards the end of the podcast where I'm like, all right, well, let's end on a high note. But this has been a lot of high notes because what we're seeing is that, you know, we're starting to wake up from that amnesic state that you described. And whether or not the Gnostic myths are, are true, it certainly seems to be a good analogy for what we're facing. Yeah, it feels that way. And it also leads me to a broader point that I'm I'm focused on more and more, this paradox of, okay, let's say you understand the spiritual reality, because there's a large and growing community of people who get the idea that there's more than meets the eye. They've gone past scientific materialism. But then you start talking about these conspiratorial topics and looking at world events, and they have there's a wide variety of views on things. And that perplexes me. So how is it that you could have the same metaphysical outlook generally and then see the world very differently? So in my books, I talk about Ken Wilber, the spiritual philosopher. He talks about lines of development. This is essential, I think. The idea is that each of us develops along these different lines, which are relatively independent of each other. And we're at like different stages within the line. And he, the way he summarizes it is there's waking up, cleaning up, and growing up. And each one is a line of development. So you could be at a, at a very highly awakened stage within waking up, but you haven't done the inner work to clean up your own trauma. You haven't looked at your own darkness. You haven't looked at planetary darkness. So you're pretty low on, on cleaning up. And maybe you haven't done the maturity to grow up. You haven't, you're not into taking personal responsibility or to look at evil or to accept reality as it is, even if you don't like that reality. I think this is critical because as we develop individually, like we have to be complete beings. It's not just about waking up spiritually. And I didn't appreciate that quite as much. I mean, I mentioned it in my book and end upside down living, but it's interesting because at the time, I don't think I fully understood how important that was until COVID happened. And I saw the split in the spiritual world. People saying, if you don't take this jab, then you're, you're supporting fear and you're selfish. It's like, have you looked at any of this other information that's out there? Because then you have other people saying it is not a it's not a smart move to do that. That's just one example, but there are many cases of this. And it often turns into a, like a, a divide of like far left versus everything else. That's how I'm summarizing it, but vastly different worldly views with a common spiritual view. 
So as we evolve, to me, it's got to be this completeness. We've got to focus on the cleaning up, working on ourselves, not just having the blowout awakening experiences and understanding the metaphysics, cleaning up ourselves and not doing a spiritual bypass. Because a lot of people do that. And there's a tendency in myself too, is like, I don't want to face this emotion. I don't want to face this memory or something. But like, we have to do that if we want to advance. Otherwise, it's going to bite us in some way. And then the growing up part is to take personal responsibility and not fall into this victim mentality and to really accept reality for what it is and look at the darkness that exists and to acknowledge the material world and have a mature view on that. That's critical too. So I don't have an answer for this, but there's, I think if we're going to transcend as a planet, there's going to have to be more alignment in terms of how we view the world. And it starts probably with the spiritual community because these are people who have a very strong and positive intent to want to help the world and when that intent gets put astray, because they if they start supporting something that they think is really compassionate, but it's actually supporting something that's really dark. When I look at things like the Great Reset, a lot of these socio-cultural movements, which sound really nice, they sound nice, they sound compassionate, they sound tolerant, but they're actually the opposite. It's like, how do we get more alignment on these issues? And I don't have an answer, but it, that's where I'm honing in. I'm like, we, we got to get not just the waking up, but the other stuff too. Mm. Yeah, we need we need to take action, and I know we're sort of coming up on the the top of the second hour here, but I want to ask you your thoughts on this idea that we're heading towards a great awakening, a, an ascension. I mean, I like to emphasize here personal, independent enlightenment. Right? Nobody's gonna save you. Nobody's gonna do this work for you. And I think you would agree with that. But do you think that there's a sort of deceptive edge to this type of millinery thinking that seems to be a big part of the American religiosity and a big part of the New Age culture as well? Yeah. My short answer is I don't know, but I'm more and more skeptical of like everything these days. And because I don't know, I, I tend to think what you think is like all I can, the best I can do is to try to have my own enlightenment, my own waking up and cleaning up and growing up. And to do my best to be of service based on the way I develop. The rest of it might be true to some degree, but I don't know. And I don't like the the notion of getting caught up in a savior. And I actually closed my contact book on this because I talk about what I think is a spiritual battle of good and evil. And it's multidimensional. And it gets into things like abductions and ancient accounts of people, like you say, these prophets who might have actually encountered beings. There's good and evil. There, it, it seems to exist not only on this planet, but elsewhere too. And on the side of good, you hear a lot of things like the, the space brothers are going to come here to help us. And there are new beings incarnating on the planet who are going to help elevate consciousness. And I think that that's very possible. That's true, that there are more advanced beings who are intervening more and more to try to help us. But where I worry is that we can get stuck on that and say, well, all these beings are coming. They're going to save us. Or some of the religious beliefs about a Messiah that's going to come and that's going to save everything. Maybe it's true to some extent. I can't prove or disprove it. But what I can control is myself. And I think that's where the, like, we've got to be our own savior. And maybe the other stuff will happen too. Maybe we have to be our own saviors first, and then the external will manifest in some very positive way. And that's the way I, I lean. Well, I commend you because it's going to take more folks with your pedigree, your dedication and perseverance to wake people up, you know, for whatever it's worth. People like my family members, 
they're more likely to take it from a guy like you, Princeton educated, than a kid like me who just sort of intuitively thinks about this stuff. And, you know, you're going out there and you're going out there and proving it, making a case for it. And, and I commend you, Mark, because it's, it's not easy. And I wonder, you know, doing everything you've done, accomplishing what you've accomplished, does your family still think you're crazy? <laughs> I mean, they might think you're crazy for leaving the firm, but after all you've done so far, I mean, what, what are their thoughts now? Generally, they've been very supportive. So I, I don't know, depending on the family member you ask, some might think I'm more crazy than others, but generally they support me. We might have some differences of opinion. Maybe they haven't looked at certain things as closely, but I would say, no, they don't think I'm crazy. That's awesome. And <laughs> that's something for us all to look forward to, whether you're you know, in school or a dropout like me, you know, there is a, a way to break common ground with anybody. And I think your books would be great for a few of my cousins because they have a hard time understanding what I'm talking about. But I think you would make a better case than I. So I'm going to pick up an end to upside down thinking and an end to upside down living and leave it up to them if they want to venture into an end to upside down liberty and an end to upside down contact because those two, the latter, uh, are very deep. And I know my audience is going to probably lean towards those two first. But is there a way for the audience to get all four in one? You got to like a package deal or something? No, my publisher does not have that. Although, because they're all on Amazon. And I do see that people buy them frequently. Because if you look at the, you know, people who read this, bought this book, mm. often they buy the other ones. So I'm not sure about that. But the, all the books are on Kindle, Audible, and they're in hard copy, so depending on what you like. But I also want to comment in, on what you talked about with like your academic background, my academic background. The more I've gotten into researching all this stuff, the more almost self-conscious I am of having the traditional background because I was indoctrinated and I was like in it totally. And a lot of the people I know who are super smart, like really smart intellectually off the charts, don't see some of these other things. Whereas people who have less traditional education like these people are geniuses. I keep coming across people who they they get it way more because they haven't had the rigidity of the of the educational system that tells you certain things are good or bad or the trust in the experts because they have a certain degree. So I'm I, I really respect the people that don't have that background and see through all the stuff that I'm just learning now for the first time. So what I try to do because I'm like starting over basically my that's what started in you know, 2016 was to start my life over intellectually and otherwise is to say, okay, maybe I'm a little self-conscious of this background, but I can't control it. And there were some good things that came out of it. And I learned enough to be able to write these books. And like you say, there are people that will relate to me or at least pick up the book and read the first page because of my background. So that's my, that's how I rationalize it. It's like, okay, this is, I can't control that. This is the way uh, my path has been, but how can I utilize it? to the best good. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. The the quandary of like, you know, your family thinks you're crazy for one reason and your new family thinks you're crazy for another, you know, like the opposite reason almost. But I would say, you know, we're all a little more accepting than than you might assume. And uh, yeah, I've learned to really appreciate guys like you. You know, I, before I started podcasting, I used to have just this stupid idea that people in universities thought they were better than me. And what I realized is, no, I failed to do something that you accomplished. And, and we can find middle ground, common ground, no matter what we've done in life. You know, it's just different paths, different strokes for different folks, you know? Yeah. 
But yeah. yeah, from one mark to another, it's really cool talking to you, man. I had no matter, you know, what school you graduated from, you clearly got your head on straight. <laughs> I don't I don't <laughs> think they got to you all the way. I appreciate that. I'm yeah, I'm trying to take the good from it. And my challenge is like there are these multiple families. Like you you put that really well. And even within the spiritual community, like I was alluding to, there's the kind of like anti-conspiracy part of the spiritual yeah. world. And then certain parts of the political world. And what's been my challenge is that I keep challenging paradigms where I'm isolating, like I develop a family and then I isolate part of that family because I go against the paradigm within that family. Mm. And I keep doing it over and over again. And if you compare it to a Venn diagram of circles that are overlapping, there are some people that meet all the paradigms, but it is tough for me because I, I, I'm driven by the truth. Really, that's what I'm interested in. That's how I started. I want to know what's true because until I know what's true, it's hard to know how to live and how to act. What should I be prioritizing in my life? So that's what's driving me. But when you do that, you start to realize that not everyone, number one, has spent as much time because they're busy with other things. Like I've dedicated myself to this. But sometimes people don't want to know the truth in certain areas. They want to know it in some places, but not others. Mm. And then there you can butt heads because you'll say things that you've researched, but that person doesn't know it existed. So they have a different paradigm and they might be in your family in some ways, but not in other ways. Mm. So my challenge is I just have to go forward and not, in some ways, not care what people think. Like in a lot of ways, I want people to understand what I'm doing, but know that I'm going to be misunderstood. And that's just how it goes. Well, for that reason, you'll always be a perfect fit for this family. So you're welcome back anytime. I hope to Thanks, see man. more books written. And yeah, I, I I totally resonate with that. I think that Right now, more than ever, podcasting is is sort of like a ultimate leveler. You know, it's really sort of leveling the playing field for people. I personally went from being just a delivery driver to now working for Sam Tripoli and talking to brilliant guys like you and gals too. And you know, it's it's a pleasure to to have the audience that we have. And you know, I'm curious, what's next for you, Mark? I mean, we we do want to have you back on the show. So, what can we look forward to? Well, number one, thank you for all that you do. I really respect podcast hosts that are willing to talk about these topics because that's how I learn primarily. And then I get referred to books. So like, I just can't thank you enough for the courage to do this sort of thing and to challenge paradigms. And I'd be happy to come back whenever you want. I don't know what's next. <laughs> it's a little disconcerting because I started this way when I left my job, didn't know what was next. And then a book came and that's happened. Like content has come every time. And I'm only a few months removed from the last book. So I'm giving myself some space, but I don't know. I mean, I, I am interested in these topics that we've talked about sort towards the end of the interview. How do we have, how do we unite people? How do we get the paradigms aligned within these different families? I would say I'm very interested in the political landscape. So very much the worldly stuff. Some of these trends in society, which just seem insane and yet they're being promoted and they're controversial and you can't even talk about them. Some of them, you know, like the, the, the cultural stuff. I'm interested. I don't know if I'm going to write about those things, but I'm just trying to understand these things because as I research what a lot of the political commentators have been writing about, this has been going on for a long time. There's a movement towards the left. There's a movement towards the right. And it's the same themes. One wants more control. They want technocrats. Another one wants liberty, wants people to be free. One is sort of anti-human. One is pro-human. This is stuff that's just new to me. It's not new to the world, but I, I try to, I'm trying to understand that because I think as I talk, especially with my third book, as I talk about liberty, I have to be really aware of the history of this stuff and understand the cultural movements and watch them as they happen. So I like on my Instagram, I'm now shadow banned very heavily, but I post a lot of news stuff 
So this is something I didn't do before. As I'm learning about things, I just post them. I don't even comment most of the time. Like if I listen to a podcast, I'll just post it. And I have a Telegram channel, Mark Gober Official, because my Instagram is so heavily shadow banned, even though I do post on my stories. And I do post on Twitter more where I'm just sharing things that I'm looking at because I think like there has to be this overlap of people who understand spirituality. Not that I understand everything, but people that have looked at it, let's just say, and have this idea of interconnectedness, but then understand what's happening in the world to apply the spirituality correctly. Because I took this for granted that, oh, if you have the same spiritual metaphysics, it would be easy to apply things to what's happening in the world. I don't think it's that easy. You have to understand the nuances of what's happening in the day-to-day. So that's where I am now because I'm sharing a lot on my Telegram and trying to understand that, and I don't know where it's going to lead. Well, you mentioned the non-aggression principle earlier and voluntarism, and I think that's a you know, really interesting direction. I find myself in that sort of persuasion. So sounds to me like you're going towards that. Are you, when you mentioned the Mises, I forget the, the, what it was, but I've heard it as the Mises caucus. Is that the same thing as the Mises group or is that the, the same? Yeah, they're related. The Mises caucus is within the libertarian party. Okay. Okay. And so it's a political group, but they abide by generally the principles of the Austrian School of Economics. What I mentioned is the Mises Institute. It's a physical location. I actually spoke there several months ago. They have an Austrian economics research conference. Mm -hmm. So it was fun for me to speak among economists and then talk about like near-death experiences and bring that in because they're all about non-aggression principle, but I was bringing in the spirituality to it as well. So it's very much related. And I would encourage your audience and you, Mark, as well, if you're interested. I just like, I love reading their stuff. It's just, it's so, it makes so much sense. And I studied economics at Princeton. I started off in the economics department where they teach. It's all about how the government's going to intervene. And you do these crazy mathematical models and graphs. And these guys are just like, they simplify it. And it it abides by the non-aggression principle. To me, it's like the most morally consistent. I mean, it tends to be, it's it's libertarian, but an extreme of a libertarian. So some libertarians wouldn't agree with it. Some would, because it says no government. Libertarians generally say limited, but it's more like right it's definitely aligns more with the right than the left in terms of like leaving people alone and a lot of the cultural stuff. But I I just, I think it's fascinating. And I love the fact that they have free resources. Some of the books, not only are they on like available in ebook that you can just download. If you go to Mises.org, they have a section on books, like brilliant books. Some of them are also on audiobook for free. So it's just like, you can learn a lot if you're interested in this stuff. Yeah. I'm going to link that in the description. Your website will be in the description as well. And people can go there to find out more about you, find out where to get the books and all that. And I did mention that because I'm familiar with the Mises Caucus because my girlfriend and I went to Porcupine Fest Freedom Festival last summer. And Dave Smith, I guess, his plan mm-hmm. is to run for president, and he's associated with the the Mises Caucus. I'm a fan of Dave. I think he's a very funny guy. I'd love to see him in the uh, behind a podium debating some of these clowns. <laughs> but that's a topic for another day. Mark Gober, thank you so much for being here, brother. It's been a pleasure going through all these topics with you. Any final thoughts, uh, words of advice you want to leave the audience with before we go? Well, I want to thank you again for having me. And I'll close with what I said earlier. The little things are the big things. That stuck with me from the life review. That's what people remember when they come back and relive their life. They remember the little things of how they treated people. Mm. So it's, it's something that's somewhat easy to implement because you don't have to be like doing podcasts like us to have an impact when you think about it that way. That's one of the messages I try to impart because like I'm you know writing books and doing these things publicly and some people would say, well, 
what can I do? I'm in a job and I'm not doing those things. The way we interact with people can have a serious ripple effect. I mean, the butterfly effect, this will be my closer, where mathematically a butterfly flapping its wings in Asia can cause a hurricane in New York. That's how the math works. It's known as non-linear dynamics. Linear would be you close a door, you, you slam the door shut with a lot of force and it will close proportional to the force that you exert. Whereas something that's non-linear is you're really nice to that cashier or some person that you don't even know and that person has a better day and then you know it ripples throughout society. So I think that's the that's the way we can all have an impact in a relatively easy manner. Wonderful. Well said and a great place to leave our audience for those listening. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Mark Gober. Real quick, before we get to the outro, just want to give a shout out to some of the people who have donated to the show and donated to me on my birthday. Thank you for the support. It all goes to the podcast and it all goes to making sure this podcast comes out sounding bigger and better every episode. So real quick, big shout out to Kaylee P. C. Wilson. Gabby, one of our longest-running patrons who recently bought a pendant from the Ko-Fi store. Shout out to you. Uh, Pip's Curiosity Shop and Elizabeth M. Just to name a few, thank you so much for your support. And if you would like to be included in that, go to the episode description and donate. We have a Cash App, a PayPal, a Venmo, a Patreon, a Rockfin, a Ko-Fi store, a Buy Me a Coffee. Really, any way that you'd like to support me and this podcast is available to you, even cryptocurrency if you pull my leg and send me a dm all right and that is this episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast episode 221 with guest mark gober the author to an end to upside down thinking an end to upside down living an end to upside down liberty and an end to upside down contact wow many Many profound statements made, many beautiful ideas elaborated on here in this conversation, and surely you'll find all of those and more in his great series of books, all very aptly named An End to Upside Down, etc. So I look forward to more in this series, and uh, as far as we are doing over here and my family thinks I'm a crazy world Uh, we are doing many things Uh, we found something very amazing in the woods I don't want to talk about it yet publicly I've only shared pictures with, uh, with, with a couple people a handful of people but we found something amazing as far as we know we found something undiscovered So if you haven't already seen my podcast, Esoteric America, go over to whichever uh, podcast app you're listening to 
right now through this wherever you're listening to this go over search esoteric america subscribe follow start listening to the older episodes and then go over to the my family thinks i'm crazy youtube channel so you can see the newest episode and uh, hopefully it'll be out next week and i'm not sure if if we'll get into it uh, on this episode or the next but pretty soon Tara and I will have some big, big news and some big presentation, a big presentation to give about what we found here in the quiet corners of Connecticut. So as for that, stay tuned and follow Esoteric America. You know, I do another show called Your Handbook for the Apocalypse with Michael Wan on his RSS feed that goes by the name of Susquehanna Alchemy, Susquehanna like the river alchemy like the practice and you could just search that up and you'll find a bunch of cool stuff there not just the show that mike and i do but some content with just himself from his youtube channel and also a show that he does with ross ben the great ross ben so that is very exciting if you haven't subscribed to that i do a show every week with mike you're not going to hear the same audio quality as you do here in these conversations, but that's okay. The, the information is high quality. The conversations are quality entertainment. Uh, a lot of people have followed the, the arc of the show, or the course of the show, and really love being a part of the journey. So maybe go back and listen to some older episodes, maybe jump in into the newer episodes. But like I said, it's it's not the same quality as this show, but that's mostly because Mike is out in remote areas talking to me through his phone, and then I record it on our mixer here. So, But with that being said, we have noticed that the listenership isn't as great as it could be, so maybe we will ultimately change the way we do it. I don't know. I think Mike and I are going to start recording via Zoom He's still going to be on his phone, but if it's via Zoom, it might be a better, a higher quality. So look forward to that. Uh, new episode of Illuminati confirmed coming out uh, every other Tuesday. We're going to do live streams. And then every other other Tuesday, we're going to be doing a Patreon episode. So if you want to get an episode of Illuminati confirmed every week, you got to be on the Patreon, whether it's my Patreon or Juan's Patreon. I don't care. The one on Juan podcast needs some love. Show him some love. Uh, he's actually doing fine. So do whatever you will. <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. He might not appreciate me saying that the one-on-one podcast needs love maybe he will i don't know is he even gonna listen to this conversation with mark gober maybe he will i don't know hi Juan, if you're listening anyways we have other great news the hitkit.us if you haven't seen you got to go to the hitkit.us i think it's actually just hitkit.us And the link should be in the description from here on out. I know I said that last episode and I did not remember to do it. But this episode, for sure, I'm sitting right here right now and I'm going to write Hit Kit right here. So if you don't know what the Hit Kit is, what are you waiting for? You need one. If you're a smoker like me, you don't need to be carrying your joints and your blunts around in your pockets. Okay? That's going to lead to a disaster. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, Mark, I'm smart. I carry my joint. I carry my blunt in my breast pocket on my button-up shirt. 
Well, guess what, bozo? What if you trip and fall? Your blunt is going to go flying across space and time, across the final frontier, and you can kiss that sweet high goodbye. It almost happened to me yesterday while exploring this uh, mysterious site that we won't say much more about. I had my, like a fool, I had my weed pen in my breast pocket. I jumped from one rock to another, and there goes my weed pen cascading through the sky. And it landed in a river. Luckily, the river was dry. I sifted through the leaves, and I recovered it. I found it. Now, if I was smart, and I had my weed stuff in my hit kit, it would have stayed safely in my pocket. And... Everything would have been a-okay, which it ultimately was, but don't risk it. Get yourself a hit kit. My man Garrett over there is putting together some cool stuff, and uh, you can even get a hit kit with the seven hermetic laws on it. So you don't need need to be carrying a book around to your smoke sash. You could fill the homies in on what the Kabbalion is all about right there on your hit kit. Just pass them the hit kit. The lighter stays in the hit kit. You use the lighter from the hit kit. You're like probably hearing me say that. Like, what is this guy talking about? Go to the website. Look at the images. Look at this cool device that our man Garrett has created and is now sponsoring the show with the hit kit. I have a hit kit. I use my hit kit. Have I said hit kit enough times? Hit kit, hit kit, hit kit. Buy one now and use promo code crazy and you get... 15% off, I think, or maybe 20, or maybe 10. Just roll the dice. Get a hit kit. Even if you're not a smoker, give one to a friend that is a smoker. Uh, Put it up on your fireplace so everyone will see the seven hermetic laws. That's about it for promos for today's outro. Hit kit is our sole sponsor this month. No, uh, no, what was the last one? Smile brilliant. No more. We'll see. Maybe we'll get them back again. But, uh, yeah, it's just me and the Hit Kit. So if you want to support the show, please help us out on the Patreon. The Patreon is the best place to support the show. You get the most value for your dollar when you support on Patreon. You get access to a bonus feed, which releases all of the episodes early. As soon as I'm done editing, I publish all episodes to the Patreon. So you can get it all there first. And, of course, you get the bonus show that I do with Juan Ayala from the One-on-One podcast and my buddy Chris Prozer from the Mensa podcast. Uh, and we we record, like I said, at least four times a month. So don't miss out. Check that out. Other bonus content is there. We got the book club rocking. I got a list of books now that you can uh look through if you if you maybe are in the market to pick up a new book you're not sure what to get i have a book list uh and you can find all my recommendations and it helps out the show i get like a small fraction of of the the price of of the book somehow so uh, that is in the description of this episode as well mystic marks library Uh, you can also find it on the website which will be getting a revamp soon. Shout out to the good homie who told me that the website needed an upgrade. I agree. I got a lot on my plate over here, folks. I don't even remember if I plugged everything. That's how many things I have going on. 
Let's see. Yes, I think I did. I think I did. Oh, and uh, Tinfoil Hat. I was just on Tinfoil Hat this week, so if you haven't, uh, go over there and listen to that episode. Leave a comment on Sam Tripoli's Instagram and say that I'm your favorite guest ever. Tell you know, put a review on Broken Sims. Say you want more Mark Steve's episodes. Help me out. Put in a good word, okay? Tripoli pays me to book the show, so he's not going to have me back on the show anytime soon, unless, unless the swarm wants me. So, give me a shout out, folks. Tell him, tell him that Mark dropped the hammer of the gods, and Sam didn't even recognize it he's out there giving hammer the god compliments out to all these guests and his own booker comes and drops the triple hammer of the gods and old sammy boy has nothing to say it's okay i'll take it on the cheek this time you know i love sam you know i'll forgive that i can't expect too much maybe i'm even being egotistical but i thought i did a good job and i actually got a bunch of messages from people who said they loved it if you haven't seen it episode 612 synarchy and the war of the foxes uh tinfoil hat blue uh (laughs) blew some minds i hope blew some minds anyways that's all for this episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast episode 221 with mark gober we've got a fantastic episode coming up this monday episode 222 you know it's got to be special with a number like that and i am not holding back uh this next guest is a legend his books are uh in the lexicon of new age cult classics so yeah i'm excited to present this conversation to everybody if you can't wait go over to the patreon right now and uh you can get it it's also available on rockfin i don't want to say which episode but people can figure it out based on what i just said and uh yeah big shout out to mark gober go over to mark gober's website i believe it's markgober.com. you can just google his name mark gober and you'll find everything you need about mark gober or you just go and look in the episode description Uh, i've been talking a lot mr chatty kathy time for me to vamanos immerse yourself in the moment folks wherever you are in the now peace Out of service, can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, my third eye's open and my chakras flowing. All seven channels in my spirit's floating. Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean. It's the eightfold path in the sacred lotus. Uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic records. My ego's decomposing like a leper. I'm Edgar Casey going some levitation. So with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship. I'm weary from thinking like an earthling. While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling. 
I'm spiraling, sacred geometry, studying my old selves like it's anthropology, honestly, feeling like life's a comedy, as big a game as a paper run economy, I've been playing safe, but safest for the weaker hard way, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart, wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit, uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose, wait, But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds, kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism living in their vacant smiles uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.